Tonight's the night. It's going to be all right. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. If you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. Sure, there are some good wrestling podcasts out there, but there's only one wicked good one. Is it Stick to Wrestling? Let's ask this guy. I defer to that gentleman's authority. And with that, I want to bring on our convivial co-host, the one and only Sean Goodwin. Sean, how's everything going? Thankfully, the three things that the 70s have plenty of is bad songs, plaid pants, and those long uh, stick microphones that game show hosts use. So you can have you can have just tons of these. Yeah. You could be like on episode 5000 and you'll still be like, you know, pulling out, you know, some Vicky Lawrence song. I'll be on like some Graham Parker deep cut that no one's yes. ever heard, but I'm doing it. Yes. All right. Well, the well is just it just it overflows for you. You you once told me well, someday you will run out of the songs, and I told you I would not. I'll start I, writing songs before I run out of songs. Uh, no, I, I was wrong. I forgot about Dan Fogelberg. <laughs> Funny, so did and I. Nice. Whoops. So that, so that covers us to like 2022. So anyway, Facebook, you should be there. If you're not, it's just ridiculous because the guy we have coming on, who's a big time guy, you know, he's there. He's there. He's part of it. Yeah, you want to join our Facebook group. We have daily results. We have uh, all kinds of other nonsense, but you know where to find it. It's free. Do it up. If you like this show, you're going to like the Facebook page. I want to bring on our guest returning to the show after far too long and absent. Listen to the stuff this guy has been part of, okay? I thought I had like a pretty cool wrestling history. Like I got to see Don Morocco lose the Intercontinental Championship to Tito Santana. I got to go to the, the night of... Uh, whatever it was, Night of Legends at the Meadowlands in 84. I got to go to the Mid-South Coliseum a couple of times. I got to go to the Memphis TV taping, right? That all sucks compared to what this guy's got. He saw Terry Funk win the NWA title from Jack Briscoe, but he was there live when Ole turned on Dusty in the cage in 1980. He was there live when Ernie Ladd turned on Dusty Rhodes in Miami. He was at WrestleMania 10 for Bret Hart versus Owen Hart and the latter match. And then he was there live when Hulk Hogan joined the NWO. I used to be grateful. Now I'm jealous. The one and only Barry Rose. Barry, thank you for taking the time being the guest on Stick to Wrestling. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you guys for lowering your standards and bringing me back. I'll tell you what's funny, though. When you look at that list, uh, a lot of it was, uh, I'll say it was luck. Like, you know, at the end of the day, really, it's not like we're planning this out ahead of time where I, I knew that if I went to WrestleMania 10, that I was going to see this great match between Brett and Owen, though I believe that match was advertised, obviously, but I didn't know that it would become what it became. In the Hogan turn, I want to say that was my first live show in probably two or three years but prior to that, it was maybe my first live show in five years. So I, I really hadn't even seen a lot of wrestling. And actually, Ron Lemieux was with me that night. We were, uh, we were both living in the Orlando area. So a group of us, Tony Aragona, I think, was there. But a group of us went from Orlando and, and went to Daytona to see it. And we had all heard the rumors about Hogan. But, you know, it's really funny. I was watching the dark side of the ring last week with Owen Hart, which was really a heartbreaking episode. And as I was watching it and they were focusing on Brett versus Owen, I started to make a list in my head going, well, sh you know, I, I saw that match 
what else have I seen that may stand out? And obviously, for me, the biggest match I've ever seen live is going to be Terry Funk winning the NWA World's Heavyweight title. And as you guys know, because you both are longtime fans, you both are, uh, you know, guys who love the history of professional wrestling, which is something I obviously really, truly appreciate. The world's title changed hands once every two to four to five years. Yeah. So when it, exactly. So when, it, when a world's title changed hands, it was literally the apex of being a professional wrestling fan. It wasn't like now. It wasn't like you were going to buy a pay-per-view and know that you were going to see a title change. We had no idea that night going into it. So those are big matches. And, oh, you know, it, and Barry, it, I'll go one step further. You sure. only saw it in your territory once a lifetime, maybe twice. I mean, you, there would be the title would change hands, but it would be in Kansas City. It'd be yes. in. So you would only have it. It only changed hands in Florida before, you know, while it was still important. Twice, maybe? Was it two twice. or three times? Twice. Yeah. That was it. It was, uh, I mean, unless it changed, you know, no, it didn't even, I was going to say, unless it changed in later years, but. But it didn't. But basically, right, Terry beat Jack and then Dusty beat Harley six years later, five and a half years later. So we only saw it twice. And, you know, it was, I think with the Dusty thing, and I don't want to obviously get too far ahead, but with the Dusty turn, we knew that Dusty was going to get the title at some point. You don't chase the world title for five, six years. Eventually, there's got to be a payoff to it. So we all said, okay, when is this going to happen? And the way they had built that up, we all kind of felt Dusty was going to win the title. But conversely speaking, when Terry Funk won the NWA World's Heavyweight title, there was not one person in that building that thought that Terry had a chance that night. I, I mean, and I want to ask you about that. This coming in, that was advertised as Dory Funk Jr. versus Jack Briscoe. And what, what was your feeling? How did you find out that was going to be Terry subbing, number one? So they, uh, that night they made the announcement. So I was a regular for me, it was every Wednesday night. And that was part of the beauty of being in a Southern territory is that you had that very set schedule. So for me, I would hit Monday in West Palm beach Friday in Fort Lauderdale, but Wednesday night was reserved for my dad and myself. And we would go every week to see, uh, to see wrestling in Miami beach and, uh, Terry, and we'll get into Terry obviously, but. Terry had been around a few months earlier and then was gone. And when they announced that Dory was not going to be there and they announced it, I want to say the beginning of the first match, you know, as they're doing the introductions of the night and, and the, uh, the, the pledge of allegiance, whatever they were doing, it, you're right. <laughs> Star Spangled Banner, pledge of allegiance, whatever it was, they announced that uh, Dory would not be there and that Terry would be taking his place. And again, I don't think there was, we all love Terry. I mean, you know, Terry even back then was phenomenal. But I don't think that anybody thought that he was going to be defeating Jack Briscoe that night. There were no one did. That no. is part of the reason for that, and maybe the reason they did the late sub was because in the run heading up to the title, Terry lost to everybody in the concession boys in the stands, basically setting up a million rematches for when he becomes champion. I mean, could that? I, I was sitting there thinking that why they did the late shift because he had lost so much that like you're sitting there thinking there's no way. Yeah, that, that was a lot of it. And hey, Sweet Lou checking in as well. Dory did beat Kaniski 69 in Tampa. So Sweet Lou uh, correcting me. So I'm supposed to be the guy who knows this stuff, right? Sweet <laughs> Lou correcting me, which is great. He is correct. Dory did win the title at the Fort Homer Hesterly Armory on February in 1969. But yes, you're absolutely correct. Terry had been a babyface 
throughout the summer. Uh, I guess it was late spring, summer, and then early fall of 1975. And he was this kick-ass baby face. And I, I compare him all the time. He was, in my opinion, he was Stone Cold Steve Austin some 25 years earlier, whatever that time frame is, 25, 30 years earlier. He was this kick-ass baby face. But the difference being, Terry dropped almost all of his matches. He, he wasn't winning these matches. I don't think it ever hurt him, though. It was never a situation where somebody said, oh, yeah, we don't want to. You know, Terry Funk was still Terry Funk. He was still really the most entertaining guy on the card. And it, his matches were battles. But he was putting over a lot of guys. So at that point, Harley Race was booking. And it's funny, as we're recording this tonight, it is the uh, 45th anniversary of a Russian chain match between Terry and Harley Race that took place in Tampa. So just imagine how incredible that match must have been too. two guys in their prime right there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, really, you know, for you to have gotten to see that, I mean, what, I mean, that's just insane. I mean, I'm still kicking myself for not going to the Meadowlands in 1985 when Rick Martel lost to Stan Hansen. And that by then the AWA title was nowhere near as prestigious as the NWA title was in 1975. It wasn't, but I got to say, to me, it was equally as uh, as important as the NWA title and the fact that Flair had it, and Flair basically had a stranglehold on that title for the majority of the 1980s, even going into the 1990s. So, But the AWA, that title wasn't changing too frequently, so that would have been a great one, but it was. You know, look, Dory, Dory had the title for over four years. Jack Briscoe, almost four years. Take out the Baba stuff, which, you know, didn't have. And Terry probably had the shortest reign of anybody, other than Harley Race, Tommy Rich, you know, the, the, the month or three-month guys. But, you know, Terry was really only a year and just a few months. But it, it was a big deal, and it was, it was the kind of thing. And I was uh, 12 years old when that occurred, and, and I went home that night. And I, I always had school the next day. You know, you got, I got home at 1130, 12 o'clock at night. Thank God my father was, you know, was willing to do that. But I, I remember going home and I, I actually remember this. I remember going home that night and just lying in bed and being kind of like, like I had been slapped silly. Like I was almost numb to what had happened earlier. And the next week, and granted, this is seven days later. This was still the talk of the arena. And that's what I always felt made, you know, the old school wrestling super cool. We didn't have the internet. We had newsletters. We had magazines, but the magazines, the news was three months old. So, you know, the most current information you were going to get was going to be word of mouth. And, you know, I just remember being in that building the next week and everybody a week later, it was, it was it, it was the topic. That's all anybody talked about the entire evening. Now you went, went and saw that on, on a Wednesday. Did they report it on TV on the Saturday? They, I don't believe that they did. So because that's because TV was taped on a Wednesday. So what they may have done. And I honestly, that's one thing I don't remember. And then I'll tell you why I don't remember it as well. And I bet you guys can relate to it. They may, obviously they were aware that there was going to be a title change. And, and I guess in, in hindsight, we should have known as well because the cameras came to Miami and the cameras. I was going to ask came. you who saw it. Yes. Who saw the camera? Exactly. First? Yeah, exactly. So nobody, you know, the cameras never came to Miami. And I, I remember I asked Jerry Briscoe a question a year ago and, and I was like, 
I, I was doing this this list of cage matches in the state of Florida over, you know, 75, 76, over a couple year period. And Tampa and St. Pete had this really crazy amount of steel cage matches, but Miami got like one or two. So I would, but here was the weird thing. We got lights out matches once a month. And so I asked Jerry Briscoe, I'm like, why was that? And he said, well, think about it. We didn't have to haul anything to Miami when it was a lights out match. And that made a lot of sense. You know, it's like, wow, I should have thought about that. So we didn't see the cameras too often in Miami. But I will tell you, the night that Ernie Ladd turned, which you, you brought up earlier, we did know. And I guess I was a little bit older. That was a couple of years later. But we saw the cameras that night. So we knew something was going to happen. Plus the fact they had built up the Ladd-Dusty split maybe three weeks. This wasn't a rush job. We knew that there was tension between these two guys. So maybe some of the older fans, maybe the ones that that I, I didn't have any contact with, maybe they saw the cameras and maybe said, there is something going to happen tonight. But I, I still question, you know, the way that Terry had been booked was so smart that I don't think anybody truly thought he was going to win the title. No, from what I understand, Terry was not taken. Uh, he was not just considered a real threat to the NWA title the way Harley was, the way Dory was, etc. I'd love to pull up some of those old after magazines where they had the rankings and see, you know, and granted. But again, you know, the after magazines were essentially the Internet for professional wrestling back then. If you wanted your information, you got it from a magazine. So I'm curious if after had actually knowing ahead of time, maybe he didn't. I don't know. But did they have Terry Funk ranked in the top 10? That's interesting. Yeah, this is such a. This is such a great example of Terry Funk's extreme confidence in himself. And just, he did, like, who has the courage, knowing they're about to win the title, to lose for weeks in, on end, knowing all those matches are going to be money coming the other end? But still, I mean, to, to do that and, you know, it, it, but that kind of courage, he just knew he was going to get over again because he's that kind of guy. The loss had no effect to him. Terry Funk never struck me as a guy that cared about wins and losses. And, uh, you know, whether it's a conversation I've had with him or interviews I've heard or just looking at his career, it seems to me like Terry Funk is one of the few guys that lived and breathed professional wrestling and truly deeply, I'm talking, loved it. Like, like this was his mate in a sense. So, yeah, I, uh, you know... Terry Funk is not my favorite professional wrestler of all time. He's top three, but I will say, I think Terry Funk is the greatest professional wrestler in the history of the business. Now, who is your favorite wrestler of all time? Billy Robinson. So Billy Robinson is a guy that, uh, we saw Billy in late 75 stuck around for about eight or nine months, came back once had a match with jumbo Sharuda on Miami beach where there were cameras. So we did. We knew something was going to happen that night as well. But Billy Robinson brought a style and we had seen guys, you know, Tony Charles, who I, I to me is possibly maybe the most underappreciated professional wrestler of the territorial days. But Jeff Ports, another guy that got no love in Florida whatsoever. But Billy came and Billy's style was so unique and he was so interesting. And I remember as a kid. Other kids would be on the playground. You know, I remember in recess or after school and kids would be going around 
giving other kids the bionic elbow or drop kicks <laughs> or some. Exactly. Not me. I was doing like these these like Billy Robinson, you know, chain wrestling maneuvers that were really bizarre. Uh, I was just so taken with his style of wrestling. And then he would come up with these moves just out of nowhere. Like one I remember he would do is he looked like he was about to bring somebody up for a um, for an atomic drop and just drop him for a backbreaker. He had like almost like that Scott Steiner thing where he would almost seem to come up with a move where you're just like, have I ever seen that before? Well, I mean, when Scott was young. Yeah, his backbreaker was incredible, too. And, you know, that and people will say the Robinson backbreaker, but so much of what he did was unique. And then if you watch. So this is a, I think this is a really good comparison. About five or so years ago, I pulled up a there was a, a video on YouTube and it was like the best of Billy Robinson. And it wasn't it wasn't like his best matches. It was his best moves and maneuvers. Oh. And it was maybe, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was like 10 or 15 minutes as I'm watching it. So many guys, especially guys, Daniel Bryan and, you know, uh, Nigel McGinnis, a lot of these guys that were working in the independent scene, you could see that they had spent time watching it, that they had watched Robinson because they incorporated so much of what he did. He was so exciting. And I, again, I was so taken with the guy. I actually ran his fan club as a young Mark. And I don't say that in a negative way either. As a, as a kid that was 12 and 13 years old, I actually ran his fan club when he was in Florida and he couldn't have been any nicer to me. You hear all these stories about him, that he was gruff and uh, he had this chip on his shoulder and there was a real attitude there. This guy went to Japan and was sending me postcards from Japan. Uh, So just exactly just a sweet guy to me. And I did not see him for some 30 years. And I ran into him at a convention, a fan convention in uh, New Jersey. It was Legends of the Ring. And I knew he was going to be there. And I didn't know if he would remember me. And I brought a photo that I had taken with him and I'm 12, 13 years old and he's standing next to me and I put the photo in front of him and I said, Mr. Robinson, I don't know if you remember. And he looks at me and he goes, Barry, what the hell happened to your hair? <laughs> and I was just, it, it was like one of those moments where I was, you know, I was 12 again, but it meant everything to me to have him. We talked for 15 minutes. We exchanged phone numbers. We took a photo together and he was coming to Philly to do some sort of a symposium or uh, a training session in, with a dojo. And I invited him over my house for dinner. Unfortunately, he passed away before we were able to reconnect again. But I got to tell you, running into him at that convention was maybe one of the highlights for me. Uh, I mean, what I would give to be 12 years old again and enjoying wrestling with the mindset that a 12-year-old has and not having all the inside information, I do miss that. Barry. Before we get started, well, we've already gotten started, but please tell us about your show that is part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. What? Yes, we do have a show. So I am the uh, the less talented half of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, my lifelong friend, and my lifelong being the last 30 years. And John, you've been friends with Jeff for over 30 years, I believe. Yep. Exactly. Jeff is uh, one of my closest, dearest, if not my closest, dearest friend. And we started, I guess, about two and a half years ago doing Breaking Kayfabe. And, it, you know, it's an interesting show. It's it's uh, some people have compared it to the old man show that used to run on Comedy Central. We don't just discuss perfect. You guys are stick to wrestling. We discuss everything underneath the sun. Food is a big topic. 
music, we discuss wrestling, but uh, I believe we're a hundred and Sweet Lou will connect, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe it's a hundred and thirty-seven or hundred and thirty-eight episodes. We've never missed a week, which that to me, honestly, when my gravestone, when I die, which will be many years from now, I do want it to say he was a great father. And he never, they never missed an episode of Breaking Kayfabe at 138, <laughs> whatever it is, because I've never done anything like that. It, to me, that's absolutely incredible that, uh, and Sweet Lou, obviously your producer, he's a big part of what we do as well. And, uh, I love it. I, uh, you know, every week I, I could be in a bad mood and we can start recording and five minutes into it. Honestly, it's like, it's like the sun has just come out and the birds are chirping. I mean, it really, I mean. We're in the same boat. I mean, it's a labor of love. We love doing this. Oh, absolutely. So anyway, we took questions on our Facebook page, which you should be part of. Also, if we're talking social media, follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam and follow the guys who are fighting with chairs. And let me see. Let's take a question from Dominic Violi. During the 70s through the 80s, who do you feel was the number two babyface in the time frame behind Dusty? Sure, that, and that's an, that's an excellent question. So I always look at it this way, too. You've got, you have three major, and I'm, I will get to the answer in just a second, but you have three major baby faces, and then it's everything is up for grabs. If you look at the history of CWF, Eddie Graham was your first major serious baby face in that promotion. There were others. There were great ones as well. But he was the guy that the promotion was built around as a baby face. He was the top baby in the promotion. He passed that baton off to Jack Briscoe. When Jack won the world's heavyweight title, it was kind of up for grabs. And they gave it to Paul Jones. Paul did not get over. And that's not a knock on Paul because Paul at that stage was unbelievable. But he didn't get over the same way that, say, Eddie or Jack Briscoe had. And they wound up turning dusty. Dusty, of course, really carried the promotion throughout the 1970s, brought it into the 1980s. And, you know, up until 82, I would say Dusty had a stranglehold. So you're going eight years. You're going 74 to 82 that he had a stranglehold on the babyface position. With that, who was the number two babyface? So. Are we going by a crowd reaction, who the crowd loved, or are we looking at who the promotion was trying to push? So I'll answer the first part of that question. Steve Kern was the guy. Steve Kern was the guy, and you could say he may possibly Jack Briscoe as well, but uh, Steve Kern was a, a good-looking guy. He, without a doubt, you know, Steve Kern was a, was a great guy. He connected with the female base like few could. But in the ring, Steve Kern was as good as anybody. And, you know, there at times there's been a discussion when I brought up that Steve Kern would have made a very viable NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. And invariably, somebody that saw him as a member of the Fabulous Ones will come in and try to debate that. If you saw Steve Kern 1976 through 1980, you would probably agree with me because week in week out, Steve Kern could turn this on like nobody else. He also connected with the crowd. Again, the women wanted him. The guys wanted to be him. Here was a guy that went full speed when he got in the ring. So he was absolutely tremendous. 
Jack Briscoe's another guy that, uh, you know, and I don't think, you know, certainly CWF pushed him, but he, Jack wasn't a guy that needed to be pushed. He was grandfathered in from a respect factor where if people automatically, you saw Jack Briscoe in the seventies in Florida, he had your respect. He was a guy that you knew was going to deliver on a nightly basis. Uh, and there were others, there were some guys that were in and out, you know, sweet brown sugar would have been a great example in 1979 of a guy that was really right on the cusp, but it, it was a revolving door. It, it, it did seem that whenever a, a strong baby face was getting over and certainly, you know, exactly where I'm going with this, that whenever a strong baby face was getting over that push, a lot of times was going to be stopped and abruptly stopped. And there was a reason for it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have had someone tell me that, you know, when it came to Butch Reed and sweet brown sugar, like they had a ceiling because Dusty considered himself to be the black baby face in Florida. And I know that's sure. Sounds ridiculous on some level, but I've heard that more than once. Well, so, you know, we can discuss this. So this is good. And this is actually a question that somebody did ask. And they said, Butch Reed, 1982, could he have? So we had Butch on our podcast, Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry on the Arcadian Vanguard Network, I guess about a year ago, maybe a little over a year. And Butch, if you've never heard this interview, it's fantastic because he starts off and he, he can't stand us. And it's obvious that he wants no part of this. And we start to loosen him up and we start talking about barbecue. He starts calling me pretty boy, which is great. I mean, because that, that to me is what an interview should be. You know, I don't, I don't like these other interviews. I want somebody who's going to say something that might be controversial or insulting. That makes it interesting to me. But I asked Butch that question and to his credit, he did not want to answer. And I forget exactly how he skirted around it. But I, I said, did, you know, you were, I was there, I saw it. And here's the other aspect. So and I, let me give a little bit of a, a preface on this one. Dusty had been gone for months. Dusty was not around in 82 when Butch and Sweet Brown Sugar were on top. Now, Sweet Brown Sugar was over in 82, nowhere near what he was over in 79. Yeah. But Butch was the top guy. Butch was the guy that people wanted to see. And Butch was great. You know, I've been hit or miss with Butch throughout his career. This Butch 82 baby face, this was the guy. He was main eventing. He was super. He was slamming uh, Big John stud. I mean, he was doing any and everything possible. And Dusty was not around. Dusty came back. Butch was gone within a matter of a couple of weeks. And what made it crazy is if you go and you look at the attendance of that, Butch was drawing arguably more than Dusty had been before and after and that wasn't a coincidence butch butch could have been the guy and butch should have been the guy uh, well be- i'll tell you what before i ask sean his opinion i just want to throw a couple things out there i mean i've said on the show i thought right around that time frame they could and possibly should have put the nwa title on butch reed my steve kern we've talked about steve kern on the show before i have been told that steve kern was on in consideration to be the guy who to take over for over for bruno uh, the spot that Backlund got. And I think Steve Kern would have, would have been great in that spot. As someone who followed the Dusty era through the magazines, uh, I would vote for Jack Briscoe as the number two baby face in Florida during that time. But, I mean, hey, you were right there. Sean, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I said Jack, too. Um, of the guys that I have everyone that Barry mentioned, with one exception, Paul, D- 
Was this, uh, Barry, real quick, was this when uh, Paul innovated the throwing the belt off the oh, bridge into the, uh, into yes. the uh, river? So the, he was. The Tampa uh, River, was it? Yeah, it was, off, it was into uh, Tampa Bay off the Gandhi Bridge. And Paul was. Uh, so Paul was a heel when he came in. And, and then he turned babyface and had this bloody feud with Buddy Colt. But there was a triad of matches. There was a point when Paul was actually a tweener. And on any given night, you could have seen Buddy Cole, Paul Jones, or Jack Briscoe wrestle each other. And they were all three. One city would have two guys. The other, another city would have another pairing of these two guys. This was a highlight. And Paul Jones gets a, a, a rap, a negative rap. And a lot of it, again, it's the modern fan that saw him as a manager. He was terrible. Uh, you know, he was terrible as a manager. But even as a wrestler later in his career, Paul, you know, he was he wasn't a tall guy. He was what five eight, five nine. Threw a great punch. But if you would have seen Paul in the early seventies in Florida, he was fantastic. Again, he I I don't think he ever got over. And it could have been his interviews. I never thought his interviews. For some reason, I didn't quite connect with his interview style. But his his in ring matches were fantastic. Another guy that I left out, and I and I I think he deserves to be mentioned. Uh, and certainly there were a bunch Ernie Ladd in the short time. He was a baby face was super over. I mean, he was just, you know, I, I, I think in some ways they might've turned Ernie too quick. It was four months or three months that, uh, that Ernie was a baby face, but he was the number two guy. Bugsy McGraw is another one, Bugsy McGraw. And, and I told Bugsy this and I didn't, this was not blowing smoke up his ass, but when Bugsy turned babyface within one week, he was equally as popular as Dusty was. I don't know if that popularity continued, but I can tell you in the short term, initially, it was absolutely Bugsy was super over. Mike Graham is a guy. So Mike Graham is a guy that uh, will never get the respect he deserves. And, you know, a lot of that, again, will be Mike's size. Mike was what, five, seven. And also Mike. His later years in WCW and some of the comments he made really didn't endear a lot of people to him. But Mike in Florida was Mike never got pushed the way that people always claim he got pushed. Again, I was there. I've researched it and I can tell you that Mike didn't win the Florida title until 10 years in his career. So when people would say, oh, you know, Eddie made him champion. Really? He wasn't. He was never Southern heavyweight champion. Didn't win the Florida title until until 10 years later. Mike was the TV champion. Mike was a, a perennial tag team champion. But Mike was really over. And I think had it not been for somebody like Steve Kern, Mike would have been a bigger star in some ways. You know, a couple of thoughts. I mean, I used to get Florida wrestling on cable in 80 and 81. If the, Mike Graham, I thought, was fantastic. I was really surprised when I started getting newsletters and people were telling me that Mike Graham wasn't that good. I'm like, I, I, if I had turned on that show and one day saw that Mike Graham was the NWA champion, I would not have been surprised. And Barry, you get it too. Bugsy McGraw was great as a babyface in Florida. And I just don't know how that didn't translate into Memphis or world class, but it did not. Oh, it was terrible. And, and, I, yeah, I'm sorry, Sean. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to mention one other name, uh, Manny Fernandez. So, no. So, and I'll tell you why with Manny. This is not a knock on Manny because I, I, when Manny went, 
Manny's matches, A, were never boring, and every match was a fight. So Manny didn't have bad matches, and we saw Manny, what was Manny, uh, you know, essentially a year or two in the business when we saw him, and he, uh, Manny's problem, in my opinion, was coming into the state with no reputation behind him and then defeating Terry Funk for the title. And I, I remember the week, and, and Manny in real life is a, uh, I don't want to say a heel, but he's a no-nonsense, not going to take any crap from anybody kind of guy. And Manny, uh, the night that he won, I guess he won it in Tampa the night before. So we saw him in Miami the next night, and I actually took a photo with Manny. And I have these photos <laughs> And a fan came over to him and started heckling him and saying, you couldn't beat Terry Funk on your best day. And Manny's like, you know, Manny starts cursing at the guy, <laughs> basically <laughs> putting the guy in his place. But it, I think that's what hurt Manny was he was really an unknown commodity. And I think if Manny had a bigger rep coming into the state, he would have gotten over. And that's not to say he didn't get over because he did. And Manny certainly got over. I just don't, I never saw him as a guy that was going to be able to carry the promotion that I never saw. I, we talked about the after mags earlier. I mean, I remember the day I picked up a magazine when I was visiting relatives in New York, the magazines came out uh, earlier in New York, like by two weeks. And I see a guy, you know how after we do the rankings, like the Florida champion would automatically be ranked in the top 10 in the NWA, the Georgia champion, et cetera. I mean, the first thing I look at is the ratings and I'm like, who's Manny Fernandez? And why is he ranked number six or whatever he was? Yeah. And so that's it. And so we're, we're, we're agreeing <laughs> in a lot of ways. That's what hurt Manny. And you beat, I mean, you beat Terry Funk, a former NWA World's Heavyweight Champion, a guy that had been in Florida for some 13 years off and on. His first match was 67 in the state, but there was a real history. And even if the fans didn't like Terry Funk, there was a lot of respect because we knew it was Terry Funk. You know, it yeah. was one of the Funk family. And then you've got this unknown kid. Again, Manny Fernandez, he's 5'9". So he was a powerhouse. I never saw Manny have a bad match, though. But uh, I, I think I just don't I don't see where he could have carried the promotion. No, I, I see where you're coming from there. And it was, I thought it was kind of strange, too, that they never brought Manny back in like 82 or 83. He was certainly available. Yeah, that is strange as well. And uh, I, I don't know. Something went down. I don't know what it yeah. was. Manny, Manny had a rep. You know, none of this, I'm not breaking any kayfabe on this one. Manny had a rep of a guy that could be a bit of a butthead. <laughs> maybe a nice way to put that. And he had an, uh, an incident. You guys ever hear about the incident in the Jacksonville locker room? No, please tell us. Absolutely. So, uh, and I got this verified and I forget. Ex oh, actually, Paul. So Paul Jones told me this story. Paul Jones and Manny did not like each other. And I interviewed Paul Jones and I'll break kayfabe on this. I've talked about it. I was going to write Paul Jones's autobiography and it just, I had some things that we started in 2004. I did an interview with him and Paul Jones was amazing. He dropped every profanity known to man multiple times was talking about all the women he was sleeping with. There was just, I walked away and I was like, this may be the greatest interview I've ever had. This was fantastic. <laughs> Literally, he's talking about he's banging Jane Mansfield. He took the virginity of 
Janis Joplin. He's talking about all these women he used to sleep with. And, you know, it's just I'm like, this is gold. So but we get to Manny Fernandez and boy, does he unleash can't stand him. So years later, and I'm friends with Manny on Facebook and Manny was take this is before prior to Paul's death. He would take shots at Paul Jones all the time. But when Paul Jones came back to Florida in 1980 as Mr. Florida, which was a very, that's another thing we can talk about as well, because that was a whole dusty thing right there. There was an incident in the Jacksonville locker room. So Manny was a guy that was known to be a bully and he would bully younger talent. He would bully guys as bullies do. He would bully guys that he thought he could get away by, by actual bullying. So he was bullying uh, Nikolai Volkov. Now, Nikolai Volkov probably had a foot on Manny and 100 pounds on Manny and could have bench pressed Manny with one hand. That being said, Nikolai may have been the most gentle six foot four professional wrestler in the history of the business. He was this quiet, soft spoken, intelligent, gentle guy. So Manny somehow took that as a weakness and was bullying him. And I guess really trying to, uh, you know, unmasculate him, demasculate him in this locker room. Volkov got up. I believe it was one punch. Manny was knocked out cold and he left him alone. And people that didn't like Manny, and there were a few, told this story for years in Florida. That might be why they didn't bring him back. No one wanted him around. Yeah, it could be. It's I, I look at it this way, too. It's uh, Eddie Graham. Eddie Graham was a really take out whatever faults Eddie Graham had. He was a really smart promoter. And if Eddie Graham felt that he could make money with you and you weren't going to give him too much of a headache, he would he'd work with you. And, and let me cite a couple of examples with that. One is Moondog, Maine. Moondog, Maine was doing a tour of the U.S. and he was the Georgia heavyweight champion. Eddie owned points in that territory. Georgia and Florida is separated by by a border. So Moondog, Maine never came to Florida, never worked. And you just imagine in 1976 bringing in Moondog, Maine to work with Dusty Rhodes. To me, that's a natural. That right there is one you put a blindfold on. Why didn't it happen? Moondog had a rep. He had a really bad rep outside the ring and sometimes inside the ring based off of uh, his overconsumption of adult beverages. Yes. So. Eddie, exactly. That's uh, again, I'm not breaking kayfabe. So Eddie, I'm without, you know, Eddie never told me this, but without knowing, I have a feeling Eddie looked at this and said, you know what? I don't, I I don't think I can risk this. I don't want to put my guys in jeopardy working with Moondog Maine. On the other hand, look at Ernie Ladd, Ernie. You've heard the story of the Briscoe brothers with Ernie Ladd, right? Yes. (laughs) With the tire iron. So Ernie Ladd's supposed to drop the Florida title meets the Briscoe brothers in a parking lot and winds up clubbing them both over the head and throwing them in a trunk of a car. Ernie Ladd was back within a year or two of that happening. So certainly there was probably conversations that were had, but at the same time, Eddie probably said, I can make money with Ernie Ladd. He's a professional. And he did it. So, yeah. Was there an incident along these lines with Red Bastine? Yes, there was. And I just posted about it uh, a few days ago. So and that's another great example as well. But I think there were more hard feelings there than anything else. So uh, and I'll give you another example right after that is so Red Bastine and Johnny Valentine in 1968 were working a hellacious program in the state. And the angle was based off of they had had an issue 
in another territory. I want I, I want to say they said San Francisco, but yeah, I, I'm not. A, they said was this a, was the beauty of it. It said the they taped it in Georgia, but they played it up like it was in San Francisco, and the window would play. The window would face Stevens and uh, Brea Cat Wright and everything like. They even got the guys from the yeah. San Francisco territory, and then they for years later, like you thought that was from San Francisco. Oh yeah, I still and, until you just told me it was taped in Georgia, I still thought it was San Francisco. So yes, fifty almost fifty seven years old, and I'm still uh, being worked. Gotta love it. So so yeah, so they they played it up like there was this big angle in San Francisco. They get to the state. They uh, they trade the title. Red gets over. Johnny is over. Now, Johnny, and I know, Sean, you're a big fan of Johnny Valentine, at least his early uh-huh. career. Johnny Valentine started in 1952 in the state of Florida. So just to give you an idea, Johnny Valentine was still working in Florida in main events facing Jack Briscoe for the world title in 1975. That's 23 years. 23 years main events in Florida on and off. And, mm-hmm. and still, it's still credible, still, still relevant. How amazing. This was not a charity case. This guy was still literally on top 23 years later in the state. That's incredible. But I digress. Well, his, his, just to show how relevant he was, his matches with Wahoo from that year were legendary for decades. Yes. Uh, which, what you're talking 75 or 68? Oh, oh no! I meant for uh, for uh, for the injury. I meant in '68 when we're talking about the Red Bastine thing. His matches with Wahoo that oh, same yeah. year were brutal. Even in, even in '75, they were still wrestling in the Mid Atlantic area. They mm-hmm. were still having these brutal. So again, you know, in an ultimate respect, Johnny Valentine. There, you will, you know, we'll never see anything ever like that again. The closest thing might be Suzuki in Japan right now. I, I would think, but so these two, who were also Valentine and Bastine, were great friends. We're at a barbecue, and I believe it was over a holiday. And I, I'd have to look. I, I'll say it was Memorial Day. No, I saw. I'll, I'll say it was Labor Day. Actually, I, I want to say it was September. So I think it was a barbecue over Labor Day weekend, and they were spotted by some fans. And <laughs> where? Yes, 1968. Word got back to the office, and Eddie fired both guys. Red never came back to the state. I believe he held a grudge. I don't know if Eddie held a grudge. I'm assuming if there was a grudge held, it was based off the conversation that they had. But Johnny uh, was gone, and we saw Johnny come back in about six months, and he was the Florida champion again at at some point. So it it was probably based on how Johnny handled it versus how Red handled it. Another guy that we lost. I'm sorry. Please, go ahead. I was just going to mention that um, that Eddie and uh, Red had known each other for 10 years by then because they had both worked in Capitol. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there was no look. It's uh, Red was a guy that, you know, it, it, obviously Eddie knew everybody, but I think Red knew everybody as well. So these were guys that knew each other. And, and Red had been in Florida prior years. In the 60s, Red was around. Lou Klein lived in Florida. I know Red and Lou didn't always get along. But another guy was Ricky Hunter, the gladiator. And this was a guy. So this was a guy that maybe had he not had a falling out with Eddie Graham could have been the number two baby face in the state ahead of Briscoe. I'm not saying he's better than Jack because I don't, I, I don't believe that to be the case. But my point being, Ricky Hunter got over like no one's business in 69. Now, I wasn't there. But I will tell you, I've had multiple conversations with fans who were there. 
I've also obviously done a lot of research. I've interviewed Ricky Hunter numerous times. He was a big deal. And he developed this cult-like following that if you look at fans who saw wrestling in the 60s and then going into the early 70s, Ricky Hunter's their favorite. The Gladiator was their favorite. And he was over big time. It originally came in as a wrestling heel. And it was great. I interviewed him 15 years ago. And he, he, he goes, when I came into the state, I was a wrestling heel. And he went through this like 20-minute description of what a wrestling heel was. And I just thought it was the greatest thing ever. Nick Bockwinkle is probably a wrestling heel when you're stopping and you're looking at it. So, so he came in, but he was so popular that they wound up turning him babyface. So you had a guy wearing a mask, calling himself the gladiator, that was now arguably the top babyface in the state. Joe Scarpa right there. Jack Briscoe was just up and coming at this point. Uh, and Eddie had been sidelined with the eye injury for a year and a half. So the gladiator was really the guy. He was so popular. He had his own radio show in Miami. It aired on a, uh, yeah, it aired on a station, uh, a, a channel called W E D R, which is still in existence, but that's how popular he was. It, you know, it just, it was just crazy as the story goes. And this is according to Ricky, uh, based off the interview, Eddie approached him and wanted him to drop his mask to someone. I forget who it was, but there was no buildup to it. He just basically said, we're going to have you lose your mask. It'll be, you know, you'll lose your mask and you'll be Ricky Hunter. And he said, well, it doesn't make sense. You're going to take away all my heat. They had a big fight. He stormed out of the promotion and never returned. That is weird. That is, I mean, that, you know what? There had to be something behind that from Eddie Graham's perspective. But anyway. I want to combine a question because I'm really cur- curious about this from Mike Saplinski and Jeff Souza, Kevin Sullivan in Florida, uh, 82, 83, 84, kind of a controversial angle. How did that get over with the fans in the state? Oh, it got over absolutely huge. So wrestling at that point, I don't want to say it was full out stagnant, but it was stagnant. You know, we had seen a lot of the same guys. They were trying some new things, but they, it really wasn't working. But we knew Kevin Sullivan. Look, Kevin had been a mid-card babyface, teaming with Mike Graham, multiple-time Florida Tag Team Champion. Also held it with uh, Haystacks Calhoun briefly as well. But Kevin was a mid-card guy. He was not a main event wrestler. And they built this angle where Barry, and you're familiar with the angle, where Barry Windham had his nose broken And there was somebody that paid Jake Roberts to break the nose of, of Barry Windham. And I, I, yes, yes. So it was Kevin Sullivan backwards, right? There you go. I I couldn't pronounce it. So, uh, I would have butchered that beyond belief. So I'm glad you guys said it, but it was a great angle and it, it was so original. It was so inventive the way that it was done, it, it literally, and I hate to use a cliche, but it literally was breathing life and fresh air into a promotion that was borderline stagnant at that point. So Kevin got over huge and Kevin's greatest asset was his believability. Again, Kevin is five, seven, you know, dusty Rhodes was vanquishing giants. He was vanquishing Ernie Ladd. He was vanquishing, you know, these big guys, you know, Nikolai Volkov and, you know, just name them monsters, King Curtis, you know, big guys, monsters. 
And all of a sudden you're bringing in this little guy with a deep Boston accent who's maybe five, seven, but Kevin Sullivan had this amazing ability to get himself over and he did get himself over. And here's the cool part about this whole angle. People believed it. People believed he was a devil worshiper. People believed he had crossed over to the dark side that he was, you know, uh, he was satanic at this point. And you could go to some of the smaller towns, get out of Miami Beach, get out of maybe West Palm Beach. But you get towards the center of the state and some of these small towns. And there were churches that were actually picketing out front. Oh, man. You had a devil worshiper. This is a dream for a wrestling promoter. It's gold. So he got over and look. It, there's if there's one fault to this is that maybe it went on a little bit too long, but you can't fault the promotion for that because, you know, every time they would do something and, you know, I think Dutch Mantel's booking and I like Dutch. So Dutch, please don't kick my ass the next time you see me. But, it, you know, Dutch's booking to me was about Dutch and Dutch didn't really get over big in the state because we were used to seeing a different type of wrestling. So, you know, whenever something didn't get over, they would bring Kevin back. Kevin might be gone for six months or a year. Then he would appear on TV. He would show up. He would do something horrific. And you could watch the gates go up the next week. Now, that's another thing I wanted to ask you about. Now, Florida seemed to go into a decline starting like 82, 83. Is it, in your opinion or in what based on what you've seen, is that accurate? It is. It's so there are two different types. Let me give you my own personal opinion on when I feel Florida went on a decline, though the numbers don't justify how, how I felt because they were still drawing at that point. 1981, a lot of Dory Jr.'s booking and, and I consider Dory a friend. So hopefully he's not listening to this episode. I'll have to make sure he's there somehow not listening, but Dory's booking left a lot to be desired. And I'll give you an example. He brought in Tommy Gilbert. Tommy Gilbert was a great hand. Tommy Gilbert worked Memphis for years. He was an Amarillo as Johnny Starr. And, and Dory really liked Tommy. And Tommy was a guy. Tommy was great on the selling aspect. Tommy's offense wasn't great. And Tommy didn't really look like, like, like a professional wrestler. At the end of the day, Tommy, especially in his later years, he didn't look like a guy, you know, we were used to seeing some guys in Florida. He didn't look like a guy that was going to fit in, uh, but his selling was through the roof, but he was pushing Tommy in main events. And, uh, they, he also brought in Jim Kent cash box, Jim Kent. And he and, uh, he and Tommy were having these coal miner glove matches throughout the state. And I can just tell you, I was 16 or 17, but I knew, I knew what I was seeing wasn't what what we were supposed to be seeing. What we were used to seeing was now different. He brought in Mighty Igor. Now, Mighty Igor was a guy with a legacy in professional wrestling. That being said, Mighty Igor, his matches were, if bad matches exist, there's a comp tape that you probably made, McAdam. There's a comp tape out there of really horrific Mighty Igor matches because those were the types of matches he was having. And I'll go on record right now, and I've said this, in the CWF territorial days, the two worst matches I ever saw live, and one you can make an excuse for, and that'll be the second match, but the one I'm referring to 
Mighty Igor versus Hulk Hogan. It was, I mean, there are bad matches. This set professional wrestling back, I'm going to assume, some 50 years. This was at a different level of horrific matches. And I'm not sure it was Hogan's fault, but you don't. These were two styles that should not be put together. And again, Mighty Igor, I, I hated the gimmick, first off. Even back then, I, I, I hated the gimmick, and I found it offensive. Even then, this is not being politically correct. There was just something about it that I just thought was just, it was embarrassing. As a wrestling fan, it would be like if you were dating a girl. So you're 17, you're dating a girl, you turn on wrestling, and there's the mighty Igor. You know, fuck. Am I allowed to curse on this show, by the way? Oh, go ahead. All right. Uh Because on our show, that's all you ever hear for fanities. But I remember like watching Mighty Igor on TV with the kielbasa. And I was dating a girl and I was like, well, and and I just, he he comes on. I'm like, oh my God. Like, you know, what am, what am I doing? Why am I, why, where, where is this lack of judgment that has occurred? Rest in peace, Mighty Igor. I'm very sorry for this. The second match that was the worst match I ever saw. And there is a reason Ox Baker versus Sonny King in a boxing match. Oh, oh, you have no idea. Whatever you're thinking, amplify that by a hundred. So within the first round and they were going on rounds. And I want to say this went two or three rounds. (laughs) They put boxing gloves on Ox Baker 30, 40 seconds into the first round. He can't lift his arms anymore anymore. He can't get his arms up. So it was, it was arguably the worst match I ever saw, but that, that goes off the promotion. And I'm assuming there was something there. This was either a rib on somebody or something. <laughs> exactly. You're not doing this. There's no way. I mean, when you're, too bad to, when you're too bad to make it to Madison Square Garden in the 70s, you're bad. Yeah. Yeah. I Sweet mean, Hansen made it. Right. God bless Sweet Hansen, Raw Bone, Sweet Hansen, who was great, though, in the ring. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Barry, you and I, you know, 81, we're going through the same thing. I'm 16 years old and I'm mortified when the Moondogs or George Steele were on TV. And I'm just praying my girlfriend isn't checking out this wrestling stuff. We're almost out of time, but I want to talk about Dory's booking for a minute. Like, I remember watching Florida wrestling and you would have Hulk Hogan, who had never wrestled in Florida before, debut on TV. Mighty Igor shows up the same week. I don't know if he'd ever been in Florida before. And all of a sudden, these guys had a beef, and they were going around the horn for a week, and then they never they never came back. And the same thing, I remember Tommy Gilbert debuting on a show, and all of a sudden, he's getting into it with Jim Kent and the Bounty Hunters. And, like, these guys have no prior history. You, to me, you need to build a guy up before you give him an angle, and you have to feud him with someone who's already been established in that territory. And with Dory, that kind of got thrown out the window. It did. So another guy, and I, look, I agree with everything you just said. Another guy that is a, a topic of conversation is Charlie Cook. And Dory made Charlie Cook the Florida heavyweight champion. And a lot of fans will shit on that. And I get it. And I like Charlie Cook. Uh, he may have been one of the nicest guys I ever met in my life. But Charlie Cook was a guy that probably shouldn't have been in the main events as your Florida heavyweight champion. And it wasn't a, and I know Ric Flair, I think, called him the worst opponent he ever faced for the world title. He wasn't, it wasn't that he was bad. Charlie was limited with what he could do, 
with the right opponent, he's going to have a good match. He had some matches with Dory that were actually very good. Charlie couldn't give an interview, though. Charlie's charisma was, you know, it, it was fairly flat. So I think if Charlie had been positioned in the middle of the card, I think if Tommy Gilbert had been the third match, you're looking at a different way. But that, to me, is when I saw that wrestling was changing in the state. 82 was a rough year as well. 83 got a bit of a bounce back. And then 84, 85, you know, it's hit or miss. The one bright spot, though, of 82, David Von Erich is the heel. Yes. You and I, I think David Von Erich as a heel in Florida, he was like a tall Tully Blanchard, as Jeff Bowdrin once said. I mean, yeah. he, was, he was phenomenal. And I have stated on this show that I think David would have had an extremely bright future had he not passed away. So as the rumor goes, which everybody and their mother has heard, was he going to be the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion? We have asked numerous, we do these fan fests in Florida. We have asked numerous wrestlers and bookers, was this this a rumor? Is this something started by fans because it's interesting? Kevin Sullivan confirmed it, but more importantly, Dory Funk Jr. told us on our podcast that, that that David was brought into the state to learn and pick up knowledge from Dory Funk Jr. because they were considering him to be the next NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. I mean, I as a, someone who was watching World Class at the time, I mean, when David died, they had more or less booked themselves into a corner where David had to win that belt, otherwise he was going to lose all face. Eh, I mean, what are you going to do? Sean, do you have an opinion on this? The reason I keep saying that, yeah, he was booked for that is because he was going through all the steps you go through back then where you'd become champion. He got the Missouri belt. He went to one of the, you know, the big territories, Eddie Graham or someone like that, and got tutored in the opposite of what he did. So if you were a heel, you'd start working on being a babyface. In David, it was the opposite. It was the same pedigree that you would see guys get who were about to be the world champion. Yeah, I think he would have remained a babyface in Texas, and he would have been a heel everywhere else, and I think it would have worked. Barry, I know you have had a chaotic schedule uh, recording Breaking Kayfabe. I want to thank you for taking the time to be on on our show, man. Yeah, if you can't tell by the enthusiasm in my voice, when I get a chance to sit and talk with a couple of real knowledgeable professional wrestling fans, about a territory that I obviously, I live with CWF on a daily basis. I run the Facebook group, which I've been doing for eight years. Uh, We do these CWF fan fests. Even though the promotion's been gone for 32 years, 33 years, we run fan fests where we bring guys who work the promotion down there. So I, I live with it on a daily basis. It's my hobby. It's my passion. I've enjoyed this more than anybody, to be honest with you. Well, you're, you're a lucky guy that you got to grow up watching Florida wrestling, unlike me, who got to grow up watching the WWF. So I want, Barry, thank you again for being on. I want to thank our convivial co-host, Sean Goodwin, for all the great work he does for this show. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, Lightning Lou. And that's it. I'm John McAdams. Stick to wrestling. Everyone be safe, and we will see you next week. And this has been a This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I knew I forgot something.